Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet. This is a podcast about materials, a making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you for checking out this podcast. It's my first time recording so it feels a bit like a leap into the unknown. I am definitely wary of the technology. I'm also hoping that my old cat Dante will not wake up with a fit and start howling. If he does, please bear with me. I will try to edit out his contributions to the show. So, I am Meg. I'm coming to you from London in the UK and I can be found in various places on the internet. I blog at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. I'm on Ravelry as Mrs. M Curiosity Cabinet with underscores between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs. M, with hyphens between each word. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. So, a few words about me. I am a freelance researcher and writer, and I have a particular interest in natural resources, the psychology of sustainable consumption, and the role of community, and in particular online community, on well-being. But above all, I think of myself as a maker. I love to make, and I am deeply fascinated by all manner of everyday materials. My own making has certainly evolved over time in its most basic form I suppose I make every day because I cook from scratch. But I also make with more durable materials. I have in the past worked with metal, with wood, with clay, but the most common material has been wool um, for knitting. And in recent years, fibre and textiles have definitely become my main materials. I learnt to knit many, many years ago. I was probably about five or six when my mother taught me to knit, and I've done so on and off throughout my life. But I think probably in the last eight, nine years, long before I discovered Ravelry, I have been knitting as a way of keeping myself warm during the winter. Well, actually, during the whole of the year, with lots of lovely sweaters and cardigans. I have also, in the last 18 months maybe, started to sew my own clothes, Not all of them, not by any stretch of the imagination, but slowly and surely I'm building up a small handmade wardrobe. And last year when I could no longer work at the potter's wheel because it was too painful on my hands, I started spinning and spinning led to natural dyeing and weaving. People often ask me why I try my hands at different skills, why I try to work with different materials, why I explore making in in various forms. I have thought about this uh, long and hard, and I think there are probably several answers to the question. One of the main answers is almost certainly that I'm just very curious. I often find myself wondering how people would have managed 100 years ago, 200, 500, even 1,000 years, years ago. For example, how would somebody in the Tudor ages have gone about stocking their laundry with basic tools or how were knitting needles made maybe 200 years ago what what material was used you know how did people cope when they couldn't just go to a shopping center or shop online another reason for making is because i might want to avoid certain things for example i might want to avoid a certain type of material i certainly don't like to have more plastic in my home than is absolutely necessary or i might want to avoid a particular company's products because i don't agree with their ethical or environmental practices and sometimes i will make something or i'll learn to make something because i've learnt that 
it's the only way to actually end up with a product that will have any kind of durability, that will be well put together and that will stand the test of time. So why have I decided to record a podcast? After all, there are so many. I listen and watch quite a few knitting, fibre and sewing related podcasts myself and some I enjoy simply because the podcaster has a beautiful aesthetic. Others I enjoy because the podcaster might focus on a particular craft or a particular technique that I'm interested in learning like Bull and Spilling's podcast. I suppose podcasts that I really enjoy and the ones that I listen to regularly are those where the podcaster touches either directly or indirectly on issues that drive or inform my own making. Like sourcing local wool. I'm thinking particularly of somebody like Louise Scully of Knit British. Uh, She is in fact the first podcaster I listened to. I stumbled across her podcast through a simple Google search. I was looking to see how I could transfer my attitudes to local seasonal food to my interest in knitting and lo and behold I found her her podcast it was probably about three or four years ago and she has certainly been very informative in my own knitting journey and also fibre journey. Apart from fibre and craft related podcasts I also listen to a lot of vlogs and read a lot of blogs about sustainable living and ethical consumption. I increasingly feel that there is a bit of a tension between the content of one and the other. On the one hand, I'm listening to material that is advocating getting rid of a lot of stuff or having a lot less stuff. And on the other hand, I am enjoying podcasts that extol the virtues of beautiful materials that focus on the joys of making. And I suppose I've been thinking about this tension and I suppose I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that a love of a craft or a material is not mutually exclusive with pursuing a more sustainable life. I therefore wanted to delve into my own love of materials and experience of making a little bit more, um, acknowledging that there are certain tensions, but also exploring how actually a deeper interest and respect for materials and a greater joy in making and appreciation of making can all be part and parcel of the sustainable living puzzle. Part of this exploration involves recognising that human beings are creative animals. I mean, it's only through our power to make things that we have actually been able to survive as a species. Another aspect that I think is worth acknowledging when looking at materials and making through the sustainability prism is that beauty and embellishment is not necessarily something frivolous. It's something that has been part of mankind for many thousands of years. I mean, pretty much since we learnt how to make marks and we discovered pigments, have we been adding embellishments. Now, we know from research that some of these decorations and embellishments had spiritual meaning or they alluded to things that were significant for society for its own survival. But I think it's certainly worth acknowledging that humans seem to be the only animals that create beauty um, and like to surround ourselves with beautiful things, however we as a society or individually define that. Another thing I'm interested in is how various making is. Making is something that we might do to meet meet our practical needs or it might be a form of personal expression, but it can mean 
so much more. It can be a, a way of learning, a way of understanding the world. It can be um, a social activity that we engage in, which embeds us in community. It can be a form of therapy in, in, in bad times. It, it can be a political act. And it can even just be part of our human condition, something that connects us deeply with those who've gone before. I certainly know that when I'm sitting at the wheel spinning or when I threw pots, I was engaging in something that people have done down the ages and there's something quite comforting in that. So I'm hoping this podcast will be a place where I can acknowledge the tensions I experience in respect of materials and making on the one hand and my sustainability concerns on the other, but also explore the possibilities opportunities and hope that I believe a deeper connection with materials and making can create not just in my own life but but in a wider context and obviously in the process I would really like to hear your stories I would like to hear your experiences and start a dialogue about materials craft well-being local geography land care implications for jobs and working conditions and so forth so let's get the ball rolling It's hard to believe that it's a week since I was at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival. The experience was phenomenally heady and I think I've been living off it for the last few days like many other knitters who attended. I'm the first to admit I don't really do festivals. They've never been my thing. I just don't really like crowds. I don't like noise. I find the whole thing very overwhelming. That said, Edinburgh Yarn Festival is different. And I think it's different because of the conference organisers and the formula that they have developed. Jo and Mika are probably first and foremost knitters. They they run the festival very professionally, but they are not just focused on filling a hall with vendors and cashing in. They understand knitters and they understand how we work and they understand what we look for. And as such, they've pulled together amazing quality of wool and wool-related products, but they've also created an event where there is space to meet, there is space to chat and there is space to knit and importantly there is space to do that without feeling the pressure to shop. I love that there is a sizeable cafe area at the Corn Exchange and that Joe and Mika have not felt the need to pack that with additional stalls. And then there's a podcaster lounge, an amazing space that has been pulled together by Louise Scolle of Knit British for people to meet and which is sponsored very generously by Black A Yarns. I definitely experience the podcaster lounge as a safe place, somewhere to retreat to when the arm fumes or the crowds became too much, somewhere where I could go and take the weight of my feet and just chat with friends or complete strangers. But meetings and catch-ups didn't just happen in the podcaster lounge, they happened everywhere, in corridors, in queues for tea, in queues for the cloakroom, on public transport... I recently blogged that just getting from A to B involved bumping into two or three familiar faces, people that I'd had exchanges with online, and that was most definitely the case. Although the event was overwhelmingly busy, it was really lovely to put faces to avatars, to knitwear, and of course to pets, because many of us knitters seem to know each other through the antics of our our little furry friends. I'm not going to try and list everybody I met at the event. By the end of the day, I was so frazzled that I was pretty much useless. But I just want everybody I met, everybody I spoke to, who might be listening, to know that I really appreciated the conversations, 
the recommendations for patterns or wool, the exchanges about quality workmanship, suggestions for books to read well beyond the scope of knitting. I would also like to thank my fellow knitters at EYF for all the laughter and hugs we exchanged. I'm based at home and spend a lot of time in my own head, so it's lovely to meet kindred spirits. It's fabulous to know that there are people who are inspired by similar things that I'm inspired by, by buildings, pottery, old books, all manner of materials. It's also grand to know that there are other people who don't think I'm completely barking for taking the time to knit a cardigan or sew my own clothes, that there are people who, like me, are interested in the provenance of wool, and that there are people who get why I prefer to invest in businesses that care about the sheep or care about paying a fair price for clip, or investing in local skills and building a supply chain. As I mentioned earlier, Joe and Mika are not just interested in filling a marketplace with vendors. They put a lot of effort into selecting independent businesses and distinct designers or amazing dyers and specialist mills that reflect the resources and talents that we enjoy in the British Isles and beyond. Um, When I first saw the exhibitor list, I think like many knitters, I probably burst with excitement. Um, And I was not disappointed. We were absolutely spoilt for choice. I think there was something for everybody there. There was certainly a lot for somebody like me who loves rustic wools, natural shades, deep autumnal colours. It was an absolute treat. There's no other way to describe it. I thought I would talk about a couple of the investments I made at Edinburgh Yarn Festival, Um, go through some wools in terms of their content and texture and colour, but also how I see them fitting into my handmade wardrobe, and maybe give you some details about their backstory, because their backstories definitely had an influence on my decision to purchase. I'm going to start with Uist Wool. Anybody who follows me on Ravelry or Instagram will know that I love rustic natural shades. And as soon as I saw the Uist Wool website, I knew this company would be at the top of my list. Uist Wool is a new-to-me company that is based in North Uist in the Outer Hebrides and offers a range of natural shade colours, mostly in DK and Aran, but I understand that they have now also bought out a four-ply. I went to Edinburgh knowing that I wanted to buy some DK wool for a shawl and I ended up choosing the Brehoch shade. I think that's how you pronounce it. Apologies if I've mangled the Gaelic. It's spelled B-R-E-A-T-H-A-C and I think it means layers. This wool comes in 100 gram skeins and for that you get about 240 metres, which I think is approximately 260 yards. It is a blend of Shetland and Texel, but I'm not sure what the relative proportions are. And finally, it is woolen spun, so it's gone through some kind of carding preparation rather than a combing. I suppose I would describe the colour as a muted caramel, but with that lovely grainy quality that you get with blended natural shades. As to texture, I would probably say it is a little bit crunchy, a bit like crisp fresh snow underfoot but because of the Shetland content you also get that wonderful coziness of a Shetland hat. As I'm stroking it I'm definitely reminded of an old-fashioned teddy bear that's been worn in with lots of cuddles so definitely there's a texture there but it's incredibly soft. As I mentioned I bought a shawl's quantity of this wool because I plan to make the Tales of Purbeck shawl by Annie Rowden. 
This is a large triangular shawl, but the shape is softened by the wavy lace pattern, which looks a bit like stylized flowers, maybe like a cow parsley head. I'd also like to tell you a bit more about Uist Wool as a company, because that definitely had some bearing on my, on my decision to invest in this particular yarn. Uist Wool was set up as a social enterprise with the aim of making use of local fleeces that might otherwise go to waste, but also using them in a way that connects the local community and the local crofters with the island's wool-making heritage. One of the ladies on the Uist Wool stand explained to me why they had decided to structure the company as a social enterprise and how this impacted on the dynamics of the business. Um, yes, of course, they take fleece and turn that into beautiful wool, but investing in the community and in skills and in the local resources are very much part of their objectives. And simply by not having to pay shareholder dividends, they can pay farmers more for the fleeces and these might receive if they were sold through the Central Wool Marketing Board. These are all things that actually really matter to me. I mean, I'm not suggesting for one moment that every business has to be structured as a cooperative or on social enterprise principles, but I do value businesses that care about more than just the bottom line, that care about the animals, people, land, skills involved in bringing their product to market. Or businesses that recognise that their choices, their management choices, can impact on job creation and supply chain creation, or even just the livelihoods of the farmers that they um, buy the wool from. Personally, I like to support businesses that pay farmers a fair price for their clip, a price that says this product, this resource, your land, your skill, your sheep have a value to me. They are precious and they should not be buried or heaven forbid burnt. The next wool I would like to talk about is my first non-natural shade investment at Edinburgh Yarnfest. And these are a couple of skeins that I bought from the Dyer Woolen Flower. I have read Julie's blog for quite some time and I regularly read up on her dyeing experiments before getting my own dye pots out. She shares her experiences of natural dyeing in quite a lot of detail and is very generous in that respect. I have also admired woolen flowers colours before. I saw them last year at a small event in London and at that time I actually apologised to her for not buying. The colours are gorgeous, it's quite a limited palette. Predominantly copper pinks, yellows, muted purples and dark greys. I explained to her then that I loved her colours but the bases that she worked with just weren't really my, my thing. There was nothing wrong with them, it's just not the kind of base that I particularly like working with. I'm not generally a fan of alpaca for example. She was very gracious about it and she actually told me at the time that she was trying to source a Shetland base so I've been really eager to see what she's done with her natural palette on that type of wool. As you can probably imagine I loved what I saw. I went for a couple of skeins that Julie had dyed with madder, which is a root that has been used for centuries to create reddish colours. Not, not a deep pink red, but more of a sort of a rusty red. And because she dyed this on a natural grey Shetland rather than a, than a natural white, the result is quite an earthy, mild rust tone. It was quite surreal really how several people I had only known from Instagram took one look at this colour and said this is just very you. It's that coppery hint of pink but very warm colour. 
Each skein contains 360 meters or about 390 yards of four ply light fingering weight and I intend to use them for a sleeveless top. I'm thinking I'll probably make something based on Bristol Ivy's linen or Andy Sutherland's Zinone but maybe use a slightly different lace pattern and with a total of about 700 meters that should be absolutely fine. I was delighted to have an opportunity to buy this yarn. Not only do I love what Julie does with her natural shades and love Shetland wool, I was also glad that she had decided to use the Shetland wool from Rodel Farm, which farms organically. And as somebody who gardens, as a food lover and as a fibre fan, and of course as an, an environmentalist, raising plants and animals organically is something that is very, very close to my heart. The last wool that I'd like to talk about today is some Gotland, and this is very, very special wool. Gotland is one of my favourite breeds, probably second favourite after Shetland, and I had a bit of a splurge, it has to be said. I treated myself to a sweater's quantity from the little grey sheep. I have knit with Gotland wool before, in fact I made my first lush cardigan with Gotland and I know that it's a long lustrous wool which produces a garment that is both very very light but also incredibly toasty. This Gotland from the little grey sheep feels very very soft to me, not in a buttery soft merino way but more like a silky airy brioche loaf soft. It has a beautiful halo, much more ephemeral than, say, a Wensleydale, probably more like a, a mohair one. I went for a colourway called No Going Back, and I suppose it's quite hard to pin down what exactly it is, as the original fleece under it is both lustrous and grey. I think the best way to describe it is to say it's like a rusty rose, or a rose gold with a warm copper and chocolate undertone. I know that's a very wordy way to try and try and capture the colour, but I suspect it's probably a better way than trying to take a photograph because it is just so hard to pin down and it varies and shifts depending on the light. Each skein is 100 grams and contains about 250 metres, so maybe 275 yards of DK weight. And I plan to make a lush cardigan with it by Tin Can Knits or maybe one of Andy Sutherland's cardigans. A lot of Andy's patterns are designed with worsted weight in mind, but I've managed to substitute DK quite well and end up with something that is a little bit lighter and a little bit more floaty. I particularly wanted to share the information that's on the label with you because it talks to the skills and places involved in this wool. So it's grown on a family farm on the Surrey-Hampshire borders, which are actually counties very close to where I live. They are to the southwest of London. Um, as such, I suppose it's quite a local wool for me. The sheep are sheared by the shepherdess, who's Susie, who's also featured on the Little Grey Sheep's website. And then the wool is sent to Yorkshire for scouring, before then travelling to Devon, where it is spun in the John Arban mill. And then it goes back to the farm where the farm owner dyes it in these gorgeous colours. I think that is a fantastic amount of information to get on a wool band. And I just wish more products, food, clothes were available with that kind of information. I hope these pre-swatch reviews give you a bit of a feel for the quality of wool that was available at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival. I also hope that they give you a flavour for my own wool palette, not just in terms of colour, but 
importantly in terms of texture and wool content. And of course a flavour of my knitwear tastes and the interest I take in the materials that go into my wardrobe. I would also add that all of these wools range in price between maybe 17 and 20 pounds so that is definitely at the higher end that I would probably pay for most wool. I'm not saying that they are overpriced, I think they represent good value for money but I do just want to acknowledge that they are not the cheapest wool av available. I also wanted to mention that I will talk about value for money and cost of wool in a future episode. I think we can often forget that price can be a barrier for a lot of people and a lot of people think that knitting is a very expensive hobby especially knitting local or knitting with more natural products so I'm very well aware of that and I, it's not something that I wish to ignore with my podcasts. I did buy a couple of other wool goodies at the festival but I'm probably going to wait with a review of those until I've had a chance to swatch with them because I expect I will be using them very soon. And I certainly find it very interesting when other podcasters talk about how a particular wool works up rather than just talking about the wool in the skein. But I wanted to capture some of my impressions of the Edinburgh Yarn Festival through the woolly gorgeousness as soon as possible. As I have been talking for what seems like ages, I think I'll probably wrap up this first episode by giving you a flavour of what you can expect from future episodes. As I mentioned before, there will be a strong fibre and textile bias to these podcasts. I will include updates on what I am knitting and more details of the yarns I use when I use them. I will also share my challenges and learning as I try to develop a handmade natural and local wardrobe. This is a project that ties in partly with the natural wardrobe make-along that Jenny and Devon of the Handmade and Woolen podcast are organising. I will share some of my adventures in natural dyeing and spinning and weaving. I will also include reviews of wools based on my existing hand knits. This is something that I am shamelessly copying from ever of the charm of it, but I certainly find it very interesting to know how wools wear. How they look in a garment after two or three years is quite important to me. I might also include some fibre and textile inspiration that I find in books or at exhibitions or insights and perspectives on textiles and making that I come across in historical, social or even psychological studies. But as I'm interested in materials in general, I will also be looking at some other materials and other forms of making, other crafts. These might include growing heritage varieties of vegetables, um, something that I consider very analogous to working with breed-specific yarns. It might uh, involve looking at ancient food preparation and preservation methods. I suspect I will be looking at paper and ink and books as material objects. Other materials I I suspect I will look at our clay and willow and muslin and oiled canvas and their continued relevance in an age of plastics and polymers. I don't pretend for one minute that I have tried, will try, and let alone will master all of these materials or become even proficient in a lot of these crafts and skills, but that's not to say that I'm not fascinated by them. Maybe it's me, but in my experience, an interest in a particular material or in a particular craft quickly prompts an interest in other materials and other crafts and certainly a respect for them. And that is something that I would really like to explore with this podcast. 
As I said before, though, I don't want this to be just my story of materials and making. I would very much like you to share your love of materials, your experience of making, your views on making as a human instinct. So I would encourage you to reach out to me, whether in the comments in the blog or via Instagram or Twitter or even on email and share your thoughts and share your suggestions and tell me what you want to hear about. As this is my first episode, please feel free to contact me with practical feedback about things like sound quality. I am by no means a technical whiz and I'm learning as I go with the setup I've got, so I still need to sort of work out what it can and can't do and what tweaks can be made to improve sound quality. But I'm sure I'll learn as I go along, as so many other podcasters have done. I hope to speak to you in three or four weeks' time. I imagine that I will find the right podcasting frequency for me based on my own making adventures as we go along. So till the next time, I wish you many hours of very happy making. Speak to you soon. 